So this is one of those weird things where we usually record in the evenings and therefore we've got uh, a wobbly pop of some sort. But today, since it's the morning, all I have is this latte. I thought long and hard about pouring myself a vodka and ice. (laughs) At 10.30 in the morning. On a Monday. But I thought, no, that (laughs) would lead to excessive day drinking for the rest of today and probably the rest of the week. Dude, 32 degrees. You're going to want to get that uh, Malibu rum out that I was talking about last week. You know what? I had myself a rum punch last night, but I made it properly. You need an uh, an ounce of amber rum, an ounce of Malibu rum. You need three parts orange juice, one part pineapple juice, and a little bit of grenadine. And if you want, put some bitters in there. Or you could do it like I did and just grab one of your kids' juice boxes. Five Alive and Malibu. Yeah, that's real white trash rum punch. From the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, now with 1.2 billion subscribers on iTunes and GeoCities, this is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guest Sting. Twice in a lifetime. A chance to listen to a classic Talking Heads track without the music. Sirius XM host and musicaholic Eric Alper joins us with his latest isolated vocal track. Hey, are you rich? If you have an iPhone, chances are you're one step removed from Scrooge McDuck. Who wrote that reference? I mean, God, come on, get up. We'll break down the research. What, you prefer a Grey Poupon reference? No, I mean... Elon Musk, Elon Musk. Plus, synchronize your watches. We've got a date for the big Facebook live show. And now, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. Here's one for you. Researchers find that if you own an iPhone or an iPad, it's the number one way to guess if you're rich or not. Really? Where did that come from? The National Bureau of Economic Research, which is a U.S. government organization, it's kind of like our stats can, um, worked with the University of Chicago economists Marianne Bertrand and Amira Kamenka, and they figured that if you tell them you own an iPhone, there is a 69% chance to correctly infer that the owner is in the high-income bracket, which is the top quartile, the top 25% of income for households of any given type. So if you were a single adult and you own an iPhone, chances are that you are in that top 25%, a couple with dependents, anything like that. If you own an iPhone, chances are you're doing well. I wonder if that's truth or if that's just perception, because Apple does specialize in luxury goods. Well, I mean, you you can have a, an iPhone 4S and not be rich. True. Or well off. They looked at the numbers, and these are the numbers that they've crunched from 2016. This is not the present day iPhone. And of course, as you know, they're now $1,000. But if you own an iPhone, it's a 69.1% correlation. Whereas if you owned an Android phone, it's 10 percentage points less likely that you are well off. It's an interesting assumption to make about somebody based on their phone. But if that's what they say in the U.S., I mean, it it has to do also with the number of people who are buying Android phones. And everybody knows that Android phones are, 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 well, most of them are substantially cheaper than an iPhone. So Right. So chances are, if you weren't in the top 25% of your income bracket, you might be going for a cheaper phone. 
But but again, too, you know, an iPhone is, is automatically perceived as a luxury item, as any Apple device is. So they've been doing this for years. So this is the 2016 survey results. Back in 2004, the best predictor for whether or not you were high income on an individual product basis was whether or not you used Lando Lake's regular butter. Just one taste and you know what we mean. Good health. Yeah. Good taste. Well, that's a bit weird, but fine. And then for brands, the highest correlation of being well off at 62.2% likely if you ate Grey Poupon Dijon Mustard. Oh, I remember those commercials. Yes. Pardon me. Would you have any Grey Poupon? But of course. Because, again, that was perceived as a luxury item. And you never passed the mustard. You passed the Grey Poupon. Right. So that's from 1992. Now, that's brands specifically. But just products generally. In 92, there was a 71% chance you were well off if you owned an automatic dishwasher, used a dishwasher detergent, or owned a garage door opener. In 2004, it was bought a new vehicle, used dishwasher detergent, or traveled domestically. And in 2016, the chances of you being high income were greatest if you did these 10 things. You tell me if you qualify. All right. Traveled in the continental United States. Yes. Own a passport. Yes. Own a Bluetooth vehicle. Yes. A vehicle, a vehicle that has Bluetooth. Bluetooth, yeah. As opposed to a Bluetooth-controlled vehicle. Owned a heated or cooled seat in your vehicle. Yes. Do you own dishwasher detergent? Yes. And a dishwasher? Yes. Do you belong to a frequent flyer club? Yes. Do you travel outside the continental U.S.? Yes. Have you ordered an item via the internet? Yes. And then at a 67.3% correlation between you being in the highest income bracket or not, have you ever ordered a plane ticket over the internet? Yes. Wow. So I'm 10 out of 10, but doesn't that all sound suspiciously uh, normal for most middle class people these days? I, dude, that's a whole different world. We're not talking about middle class. We're talking high income. So Yeah, but I'm saying that these the, the bars for being high income based on this questionnaire are really, really low. The median income in the United States is $59,000. What? How much? 59 grand. Okay. So in other words, not everyone's going to be ordering a plane ticket over the internet. If, if you're making less than 60 grand, um, chances are you're not doing a lot of frequent flying in the first place. And therefore, when you do fly, you're probably going to go to an agent because you want this taken care of. Well, or, or, or you're going to fly on Spirit Airlines or Allegiant Airlines or Frontier Airlines or one of these super low-cost carriers. Sure. Which you really do have to buy the tickets online because if you try to buy them through, well, sometimes you can't buy the tickets through an agent. And if you do, there are all these extra service charges. So the cheapest way to buy it is online. And then when we look at things like, like you don't have a dishwashing detergent, like what are we talking about here? I, uh, the only one that I really understand is the business about having a passport. Americans have this weird notion that they don't need to go anywhere because everything that they need is within the continental United States. So why would I ever need a passport? And what, what percentage of Americans have passports? 60%? Uh, 36% of Americans have a passport, according to the U.S. State Department. 36%. Didn't get to bed last night. 
Compared to 60% in Canada and 75% in Britain. All right, well, there. In other words, 7 out of 10 Americans can't leave the country. Oh, or, or they can, but it'll never get back in. They'll only get to Canada. Uh, well, and even then, we may not want them. NPR named Once in a Lifetime one of the 20th century's most important American contributions to music. And that Eric Alper has found the isolated vocal track. And you may find yourself living in a shotgun shack. And you may find yourself in another part of the world. And you may find yourself behind the wheel of a large automobile. And you may find yourself in a beautiful house with a beautiful wife. And you may ask yourself, well, how did I get Where is that large automobile? And you may tell yourself, this is not my beautiful house. And you may tell yourself, this is not my beautiful wife. I love these isolated audio tracks because it gives you an opportunity to hear all the decisions the musicians have to make when it comes to performing a song, whether it be a bass line, a a drum part, a guitar part, or, or vocals. And you get so much insight into the talent of these people by listening to these isolated tracks that it's 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 just too much fun not to do joining us now is sirius xm host music publicist and lifelong musicaholic that eric alper good to have you with us hey so good to be here are you still doing that uh that sirius xm show i am i am i do it once a week and then they broadcast it like a thousand times over the weekend it's it's a lot of fun to uh because i'm not a radio guy like i'm i'm not you and very few people are like you. So I talk to these people as if I'm meeting them and a lot of the times for the very first time as a fan of them so I can get a little bit enthusiastic sometimes. That's a great way to start it, isn't it? You know, you you, you come in, you say, I'm not the radio guy, I'm just a fan. And I can imagine that ingratiates you to your guest. Yeah, you know, as long as I don't go too inside baseball too much. You know, I'm not going to ask them about, you know, this F chord or this. But I also know that... You know, with the state of music journalism now, a lot of people just don't want to to read, you know, 18,000 words, much to my disappointment on artists. So I kind of just like to find out how they got started, what interests them, you know, what turns them on and what keeps them going. Because I think we're all at this age, you know, going into once in a lifetime, we're all in this age where we're all kind of wondering, you know, how did I get here? David Byrne said, this is not 
a song about yuppie greed, as many had believed when it first came out, that it was more about the unconscious, saying that we operate in a half-awake or on autopilot and end up whatever, with a house and family and a job and everything else, and we haven't really stopped to ask ourselves, how did I get here? Yeah, you know what? It's an it's an excellent point that he makes because, you know, the first time I heard it, I thought he sounded like a preacher, that he was giving lessons and maybe not necessarily the answers, but he was asking the questions. And sometimes that's exactly what teachers and, and priests and rabbis and people who give talks do, is that they just ask the right questions. And that's exactly what this song is about with the call and response chorus, for instance. It's the it's the, the relationship between the preacher and the congregation. And I never really saw it as a, as a midlife crisis opportunity for David Byrne because, you know, it was released back in 1981. He was probably just still in his mid-20s, uh, mid early 30s. Um, but, you know, it is about the unconscious. It's, it's about the ability for the brain to react to certain situations and stimuli that are around us saying, what is this thing? Do I need to feel scared? Do I need to feel angry? Do I need to feel hurt? Who are these people around me? And it's thoughts that we don't usually have when we're walking down the street. No, this is true. And, and David Byrne is, is coming out of a time of his life when he was living in $50 a month squats in the Bowery of New York. And, you know, he had been this art school guy from the Rhode Island School of Design, stumbled into CBGB, started making these, these weird, quirky records, and then found himself working with Brian Eno and, and having multi-platinum albums and touring the world. So I can understand how this poor guy would have felt by 1981 that over the you know four or five years, things had changed dramatically for him. And yeah. Yeah, especially from from kind of being a little bit out of step too, because David Byrne wasn't isn't isn't a, a musician or a writer who originally w starts off writing hits. He uses a lot of of influences from different styles of music, from Afro pop to gospel to punk to reggae to rock, and you know he he they're just looking for the the right sound. And in fact, Robert Palmer, um, you know, one of the great you know singer songwriters of the '80s and in and in the '70s. I mean, he he joined on their jams. Johnny's always running around trying to find certainty. He needs all the world to confirm that he ain't lonely. Mary counts the walls, knows he tires easily. Johnny thinks the world would be right if he could buy the truth from him. Mary says he changes his mind. It's a question of being able to to take what David Byrne is feeling rather than, well, let's write a hit that the masses are going to understand. And sometimes when you connect on that level, you end up with even a bigger hit, which is exactly what Once in a Lifetime was able to do. You mentioned that Robert Palmer joined the jam uh, playing guitar and, and percussion. And 
the way they developed Once in a Lifetime apparently was all about the jam, wasn't it? Isolating your best part, you play it repetitively. Burn uh, called uh, uh, the, the band members human samplers because they would just loop and sample things until they figured out a sound. Yeah, you know, this is a band that is that I kind of long for these days because going back to, I'm sure that Alan and, and my experience with talking to bands, sometimes they're just on the clock too much or that they're writing their songs away from the studio and then they go into the studio um, whether it's a home studio or a real recording studio that's away from their house and they just don't have that level of creativity in the studio that a lot of these bands from the 60s and 70s and 80s have these days and that's exactly what happened where you start to move around certain circles with musicians and that's where you end up with somebody like Robert Palmer who was obviously on tour and touring with you know just his his massive hits like Dr. Doctor and then in the 80s with Addicted to Love later on and stuff like that but you end up with hey let's go and jam because we were both from the same kind of area of you know skinny ties and jackets and punk and power pop and Elvis Costello and all of these groups that are kind of bringing in all of these different power and influences. They were also very big into the whole world music thing. Now David Byrne makes most of his living in the world music realm right now and uh, Eno helped them develop these African rhythms that uh, nobody really heard before outside of some other stuff the two of them had done together with uh, My Life in the Bush of Ghosts and a couple of other records it, it's it's the, the, the rhythmic intricacies in, in on that entire album are just stunning yeah okay so let's pump up the percussion track here he did a couple of late 80s albums um, that were mostly Afro-Cuban and Afro-Hispanic and Brazilian songs and I think a lot of that not only stems from David Byrne but just that influence of Brian Eno you know Brian's been quoted as saying that the world needs more Africa and he wasn't just talking about, you know, their 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 attitude or or their day to day living of just doing or, or, or being happy with little. It was their sound and their music and their culture and their community and their sense of all of that. And, you know, Brian Eno coming in was a huge influence to somebody like the Talking Heads. And and I don't know, you know, how much of the group would have changed had they not met with Brian. Um, I would think eventually David Byrne would, would to follow in that footsteps with connecting and starting his record label and also working with WOMAD and other world music festivals. Um, but, you know, combining those two, they understood that they were kind of creating world music even before world music had that awful line. Jerry Harrison, the keyboardist, said that because there were so few chord changes, everything was sort of a trance and that it was hard to write a chorus for Once in a Lifetime, that it actually was not a track that Brian Eno liked. You know, that's an interesting thought from Jerry, because it, until you kind of think about that and then you go back and listen to their music, you realize how little chord changes are. There's a number of bands that love to play with that kind of concept. I remember there was an album from Love and Rockets that don't use any chord changes at all. And it's got to be so frustrating for a singer sometimes to hear this music and realize, I get it. I understand where you're coming from, but where's where's the chorus? And it could be anywhere where you want to go. 
ago. And what it does is it puts more of an emphasis in once in a lifetime in the words and in the and in the moment of what David Byrne is saying, because the music isn't going to carry you along, changing your emotions. It's your your emotions are already set from the very first time that you hear it. So it's left up to David to kind of bring you into that introspective moments and those emotions based on his voice and his lyrics. And that's really tough to do, um, even as somebody as experienced as David Byrne, because you can't rely on your musician to do that for you. He disappeared for two months to write the lyrics, apparently. Well, you know, it, it had, you know, David Byrne probably had a lifetime to think about it. <laughs> it's so funny whenever whenever you you hear that you know this took 15 minutes to write or this took two months to write two months doesn't seem like a long time for me um i mean it would be a long time for me personally but it doesn't seem like that's a a longer than normal situation because you know we've all talked to artists that have started a song and left it alone for years because it just wasn't working for them um but i think david and the band were smart enough to realize that there's something going on here we just have to continue to see this through rather than put it in this big box of ideas and thoughts and and uh and grooves in the corner um of of the studio as much as i like once in a lifetime in its original incarnation I think the 1984 concert film version from Stop Making Sense is a substantially better version of the song and I find it really unusual because typically concert albums don't hold a candle or a cigarette lighter to the originals (laughs) Have you ever seen Have you ever seen them play live before? I never did. No. I never had a chance to see them. So Stop Making Sense for me was was trying to find out what all the fuss was about, you know, not only from the director's perspective, but also just from the band perspective. But I I agree with you to a certain point. I just love the first 10, 15 seconds of this song, though. It, it's, it was just that bubbling uh, percussion that, that's underneath it. I dig this song so much. It's one of the funkiest songs that I think anybody can play in a club and on the radio. And still to this day, if a DJ needs to kind of cheat a little bit and get people back on the dance floor, you can do no wrong by playing the song. You know, that's that's true. I mean, when I used to do these 80s retro nights, that was one of those songs that people screamed to. And it's like, ah, and then they tried and, to dance and to and it. And people like slap their foreheads, you yeah. know, like David Bernie was saying, you know, so it, it, it's, it is one of those tracks. Yeah, he wasn't exactly the best <laughs> dancer in the world, was he? Well, very, very few people that are musicians are, you know, uh, you know, we all can't be James Brown, but it doesn't stop Tom York or Michael Stipe from kind of doing what they do either. The video for this was kind of weird, too, with uh, it's basically just David Byrne dancing over a white background. Yeah. Yeah. And doing these really weird, jittery moves, too. It, the video looked like that it was done for like forty five dollars. Well, it probably I mean- was. Again, <laughs> remember, this is this is 1981. Right. Yeah. So um, I don't know what year what what month. Let me just see. Hang on. Um, One moment, please. Uh, from the album Remain in Light, um, it was released October 8th, 1980, recorded over the summer. Yeah, so the single came out February the 2nd, 1981. Right, so we are still months away from the debut of MTV. Yeah. Five, four, we've gone for main engine start. We have main engine start. 
rock and roll. Yeah, MTV did not come on until March the 1st of, of 1981. And the fact that they actually had a video, I wonder when that video was shot. Was it shot for MTV when it was announced that they needed new material? Because they only signed on with 250 videos and 30 of those videos were by Rod Stewart. So there was a real <laughs> there was a real problem. No, that's that's those are actual statistics. Wow. So if you if you look at uh, MTV's running uh, with their music log, the running, videos playlist. The, running playlist for the first couple of months. I mean, every 12 or 15 songs, there's a there's a Rod Stewart track. Yeah, that's so, that, that's so great. And that's a lot so of the great. stuff. A lot of the stuff was coming out of the UK because there was a long tradition of filming music performances for bands who didn't want to mime on top of the pops or the old grey whistle test. So they, the British were very good at the music clip, you know, going all the way back to the Beatles and before. So the Americans had a long way to catch up. And um, one of the things that they realized initially was that the British were very telegenic because they dressed cool, they looked cool, they had cool makeup, they had cool hair. And if you look at this Talking Heads video, it's it's meant for visual consumption as well as oral consumption because of the way David Byrne looks and moves. And I think this is a very important part of, of why that particular song and why the Talking Heads became such a big MTV band in 81, 82, 83, 45. Yeah, and, and, and you know what? You're, you're exactly right because I remember watching the first couple of months not only of Much Music but MTV whenever we used to go down to the state and almost every single American act that they were showing was concert footage. It was taking those live clips from the VHS or the beta copies that were available for public sale of those concerts and they would just splice it up out of I'm sure sheer desperation and which is probably why a lot of these UK bands looked at the talking heads and realized that they're not just your average everyday American band there's something that's going on here then that of course led to you know in the same areas as Blondie and other artists that that really utilized the the visual element of music videos. I'm surprised, though, that it didn't have greater success. When it first came out, it peaked in the UK at number 14. And here's an odd stat. On the Dutch singles chart, number 31. <laughs> it only hit 200,000 copies sold in the UK just this year, in January of 2018. And that's with all the streaming services combined. So it's not like that this song kind of went away and disappeared. What, you mean for a year? Or do you mean since it was released, it's only been sold 200,000 times? Since it was released, it was certified silver for 200,000 copies sold in the UK this year year so it took them uh whatever it did 40 years 35 years my math is horrible at that this time of the day but yeah you know it's in 1981 it only sold 200,000 copies and that's what the that's with the combination of music streaming services now allowed to be part of that and the concert film didn't help either in 86 it charted at like 91 on the hot 100 yeah you know that it, i i'm not i'm not 100% convinced that stop making sense is a really popular music film. I know a lot of people who are music fans who don't even, who didn't even realize a that it existed. Um, but it's not like that. It, it. I mean, other than continuing to tour around music festivals or 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 art festivals as as a kind of you know nostalgic piece. Um, I, I'm having 
a hard time trying to figure out how popular that film was because you know it did it made money it was made for just over a million bucks and it made just over five million dollars at the box office which was probably huge at the time for a music concert film so you know it's just one of those things where i i think it's it's almost a lost art in terms of of making concert films for the general public because now everything is available on youtube um, and that's what they're, they're, that's what people's competitions are. Now, remember that when that was released, we still didn't really have the beta VHS battle settled. And if you wanted to get something like this, if you wanted to buy Stop Making Sense on VHS or beta, chances are you would have had to spend 79 or $80 on a copy. Oh, wow. Yeah, see, that's why you had to pick it up on Laserdisc. Yeah. And then flip it halfway through. I don't know if they even had Laserdisc in 1981. When did Laserdisc come out? So, you know, this would have been a theatrical release more than anything else. And yeah, since, definitely. you know, by the time we get to the middle 80s and everybody has their VHS players, then you can start releasing direct to consumer music video productions. Uh, but there were very few people. I remember Jonathan Demi was the, the director of this one. And so he was a movie director. He understood the whole idea of lighting and uh, editing. And, and this was all done with, with various digital techniques. It was ahead of its time. So maybe no wonder if the only place you could see it was in a theater or maybe one of a midnight screening or some kind of musical retrospective. It would have, it would have been a while before the, the movie would have caught on with the general public in ways that we consider it to be modern, which is watching it at home on your own time. Yeah, and, and as influential as this band was, it for me personally, it wasn't until Burning Down the House came out, and that was the song that attracted my high school. Watch
maybe we just got caught up in a, in a different age. But I, you know, depending on the how big this band really truly was, they weren't like the Ramones that took you know almost forty years to go gold on their debut album, but then you know they were hugely influential. Um, it's not like that this band was selling out arenas like Journey or Kiss was either. Um, so I think that those two effects allowed somebody like Jonathan and, and the band to do something really creative, knowing that maybe the world wasn't watching them do this thing anyway. Hmm. Well, you know what? I've looked up the Laserdisc, and much like Talking Heads, its success didn't come till later. They put out the format in 1978, but it didn't become popular till the 90s. Yeah, I've got I've got four laser discs that are on the wall with the Muse concerts, the No Nukes concerts, and uh, Roxy Music's the, the High Road video, and both of them are from 1980. So probably around that same time, you know, when people were spending thousands of dollars on their players, is you know you would stay at home. But then if you like the Talking Heads, can you even afford a laser disc to begin with? <laughs> <laughs> Eric Alper is a Sirius XM host, music publicist, and lifelong musicaholic. He joined us from his studio in downtown Toronto. Thank you so much, guys. I appreciate it. And uh, anytime, we'll talk soon. London, Bangkok, New York, Cincinnati. From the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, this is a GNB News Update. So we have a date for the Facebook Live show. Yeah, what is it again? I'm going to put this down on the calendar. Sunday, August twenty sixth, okay, seven p.m. Eastern. Okay, I am. Uh, I'm here. I will. Uh, it's locked in. There is plenty of time to get ready for this, and uh, we're telling you now, not because we want you to put it in your calendar now, but that would be great if you did. But if you could, and you would like to watch the show, or maybe you think you'll be able to, because you know that's that's the last weekend um, before the kids go. It's the second last weekend before the kids go back to school. Can I just mention that I got my first back-to-school notice uh, for school supplies online last week, and uh, the church down the street has been uh, has been advertising Vacation Bible School for two months already. Wow! What this back-to-school creep? I mean, it's incredible this year. I have, I, I'm I'm so disgusted by it. You know, the kids were still in school when I got this back-to-school notice. <laughs> that reminds me of my all-time favorite back-to-school commercial. You've seen this one where the mother and father are shopping for back-to-school, and the music is... It's the most wonderful time of the year. It's that time of year again. They're going back. It's back-to-school. Staples. Yeah, I know a lot of parents who feel exactly that way, and yeah. it's it's not just kids in uh, in, in in public school and in, in private school. It's 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 parents with uh, kids in university. So go to our Facebook page and uh, set the notification up if you can as well uh, to notify you when we do shows that are live. Or you can go to geeksandbeats.com slash live. Sign up for an email notification. We'll make sure that you know uh, all about it. All right. We've got big plans, man. We won't tell you what they are because we don't know exactly what they are yet. No, and this isn't going to be some person doing a selfie shoot. No. This is going to be, this This is high-tech stuff that uh, you're putting together. I'm working on it. Right. We have a new co-producer, uh, Emma Borsalino. 
uh, donated $25 via PayPal, which gets her the co-producer credit, her name on the album art, and our undying thanks. Yes, please keep that money coming in because I need my share soon because I have to go to my conference in Singapore and the registration is $599 US and I'm going to pay it through PayPal and I don't know if I have, I have enough. So please help uh, subsidize my trip to the Far East. And subsidize doing the big show live on location because there is going to be some gadget or something I'm going to have to buy. You know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I, we, we, we do have the accounting department on this and we are expensing these CapEx requests <laughs> properly and carefully. We're still paying for the live on location show at CES in January. <laughs> Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes and watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter, Facebook, and get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.